Hi and welcome back. This is Police Stories Podcast, a series of short stories about my 28-year police career in the UK Police Service Force. Changes its name fairly regularly. Um, this is episode 35. So hopefully you've been enjoying uh, what you've heard so far and if this is your first time here, welcome. You might want to skip back to the intro in episode one. This is sort of following roughly my career in order. I may not have 100% got it right, but um, there or thereabouts. Um, several sort of momentous things have happened for me this week on the podcast. Uh, by the time that you hear this, I'm recording this on a Tuesday. In general, it goes out on a Friday morning about 8am GMT UK time. Um, we'll have hit 3,000 downloads in total. I think we're about seven short at the moment. So um, we'll definitely have hit it by... Um, by Friday so thanks ever so much 3,000 downloads is incredible you know it's uh, very very surprising to me that that many people would want to hear um, about what I've been getting up to but some of you must be finding it interesting because a few are coming back so that's good thank you uh, the other thing that's happened this week as well for the first time uh, people might be thinking that I'm you know making money from this podcast and uh, you know that I'm rolling in money because of it well I can tell you that's not the case I've never made a penny from it although this week um Somebody actually did the, some time back I'd added the, I think it's called Buy Me A Coffee app um, and just my reference number. And then if anybody wanted to just, you know, buy me a coffee, basically, to show their appreciation for the podcast, you could do. I think it starts from about £2 is the lowest sort of donation. And in fact, this week somebody did. So you know who you are. Thanks ever so much. I really appreciate it. And hopefully it's going to help you going forward. Uh, and again, you'll probably know what I mean by that. So, uh, yeah, onwards and upwards, it's uh, it's good. Um, I have looked at advertising on the podcast, and in fact, I have uh, been approached by several people in terms of um, doing some advertising. I'm not saying I won't do it in the future, but it just doesn't really seem appropriate at the moment. And also the sorts of things that I've been asked to do, I just don't think work on this podcast. So, for example, skin cream was one, and I can't really see me being in the middle of some grisly detail about a shotgun suicide and then either inserting an ad or just stopping briefly to say, oh, but just out of interest, while I was dealing with that, um, I was using this skin cream and it made my face feel lovely. You know, I mean, it, it just isn't going to work. So, yeah, I'm not completely ruling it out for the future, but I will try and make it, um, you know, vaguely relevant if I do. So, anyway, enough of that. So, onwards and upwards, we're talking about... Um, we I just or I'd fairly recently done my specialist firearms officer course, which was like a top up to all the other courses I'd done up until this point. Uh, so by now, my main role was uh, plain clothes uh, and I was still armed, obviously driving around in a plane car with three of us in total supporting the marked ARVs when they went to what's called an SFI, spontaneous firearms incidents. We would be back in them. And being in plain clothes just gave you those extra capabilities. You know, you have the ability to obviously sneak up on people or watch what they're doing. Um, you know, you don't arouse attention or suspicion, or that's the idea anyway, you know, because you're not in a, a uniform car, you know. So I still was dipping in and out of ARVs. You know, I could do both roles, you know. So it was um, it was very varied, and I, I was thoroughly enjoying it, to be honest with you. We talked about driving last week as well and sort of concentration levels. One thing I sort of didn't say last week was um, because the area I was working was quite big geographically, it wasn't unusual to have an hour blue light run now. 
people that work in sort of big cities and that are used to you know five minute ten minute blue light runs maybe in heavy traffic so the speeds aren't necessarily very high the county i was working at the time yeah you could do an hour's blue light run and rarely drop below you know 100 mile an hour so it was really really uh sort of high level not in terms of skill but in terms of concentration you know i literally by the time I got to a job, I was almost good for nothing as a driver, and I felt like I wanted to kind of pop my eyebrows out and give them a little, you know, rinse in uh, in something before I actually carried on and did the job. So, yeah, perhaps just that clarifies that point a bit. So this week we're going to talk about uh, something that happened in the force I was in fairly regularly. You would have um, a party conference, a political party conference would come to the seaside town, the town that is now a city, and. Um, it was a massive, massive operation when it did. The planning went like way, way ahead. You know, it started probably a year out. And uh, there was two types of sort of conference. There was one for the the political party that wasn't currently the government, and that was obviously a lot more low-key. But if you had um, the, the party coming to town who was currently in government, then it was a much, much bigger deal. And uh, it had very specific way of being placed. That um, was quite well versed because, you know, my force had done it lots and lots of times. So it had really developed over the years. And it involves just about every police resource you can think of. And I guarantee some that you've never heard of, which I won't go into now. Um, it, it involves some mutual aid. And, and there's a system in the UK where if one force needs support from other forces... Um, then they're able to call on them and they can, you know, get uh, as many officers as they need. So, for example, relatively recently, COP26 in Glasgow, um, that was a very big conference and that involved uh, a lot of people, a lot of officers. So there was mutual aid from all over the country there. You had kind of the Met Up, you had GMP, Manchester, you know, Yorkshire, pretty much you name it. A lot of BTP, the British Transport Police came up for that. So, yeah, we have this ability to call on extra cops as they need it. The obvious one is when there's a riot, you know, if you get a riot in a relatively small force that doesn't have many public order officers, then quite often mutual aid requests will go out to the sort of nearest uh, large force that, that has those resources. So, yeah, there's a lot of um, helping you know, going on back and forward. And that's why it's quite useful. And something we did fairly regularly was train with other forces, because it's no good if you get called to go and help your neighbour and they have completely different tactics or words for things, or call signs, or radio procedures, you know, you need to have a bit of a, a sort of working knowledge of, of how, you know, somebody in the force next door to you, or even three forces away, you know, is kind of going to do things. And that continued, in fact, during my police diving career, That that's even more important then, and, and we'll get onto that um, in a few episodes' time. So, yes, uh, Labour Party conference was coming to town, massive deal. The first thing that happens is around the conference centre and... Uh, the, which is now designated, it's called an, an island site. Um, and this is the same for all the big sort of conferences that happen anywhere in the country. So that gets completely sealed off with fencing, you know, all around that main sort of um, centre uh, is completely secure. And then basically has a uniform cop put on it every, like, you know, 30 metres or something. So basically, if you're standing there, you can see the cop next to you and so on and so on. So there is there is effectively an unbreakable chain there. Um, that's the outer layer, you know, and then once you get inside that fencing, should you get through it, there's lots more layers. There's police dogs, there's sniffer dogs, there's search teams, there's armed, there's close protection, there's traffic, you know, um, as I say, any sort of police resource you can think of was there. Um, so it's a very busy time. And in fact, early on in my career, I worked it as just a uniform cop and I ended up doing nights. 
and it is pretty gritty to be honest with you it was 12 hour nights stood on a point um and you know you got sort of regular um changeovers with your pal but it was it was hard work you know it was mind numbing you were stood there and in the early hours you know there was no one about so you could go ages without seeing anyone and you basically only got a break to go to the loo, maybe have one meal break and that was you back standing on your point. You know, sometimes they tried to rotate you to the next post every 20 minutes so at least you got to see something different because you do this for seven days in a row as well as a uniform cop. So it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty dull to be honest with you. It had to be done, but, uh, you know, you kind of cut your teeth with that and then move on to other things later on. So um, obviously the armed officers like myself at the time, you know, played a huge part in this. And there's there's very overt arming. So on all the points um, where you go into this centre, you would have uniformed cops standing there overtly armed with guns on show, you know. And that's a little bit of a sort of a warning to anyone that wants to try and uh, do anything silly at the entrance. Um, everyone and everything ranging from the prime minister to a tin of beans that's coming in, you know, to feed the prime minister um will be searched subject to x-ray you know and a search and you know and that will be done off site somewhere so that there's no threat at all to the center should something be found there'll be bomb disposal dogs there you know there'll be um lots and lots of sort of uh, bomb disposal teams there and available to deal with quite often supplied by the military um so yeah i, I think they've pretty much thought of every uh, eventuality but one that came up that was new on this occasion, and this is early 2000s now we're talking, um, something that had never happened in the UK at that time, and we knew it would at some point, it was just a question of when, was the UK had never had um, a suicide bomber. Now, that was uh, that did eventually happen in 2005 in London, but at this point, it had never happened, but we were very aware that it was probably coming. Um, a really, really difficult tactic to deal with, obviously, because... The vast majority of people you come across in a policing role, you know, either don't want to get caught, certainly don't want to get hurt, you know, unless they've got real sort of mental health issues, then maybe they do. But as a rule, you know, people could be convinced not to do something because they were going to end up in prison for a very long time or possibly hurt, you know, whether that was by a police dog or an armed officer or whatever. Um, but of course, with a suicide bomber, they don't care. You know, their their whole aim is to, to hit their target, to carry out whatever their kind of mission is. Um, and if they die in the process, for most of them, that, that was the idea, basically. You know, that was what they fully intended to do. So it makes it really difficult to deal with them. So certainly there was a lot of involvement then by other countries in relation to advising the UK government on how to deal with that. And uh, I think Israel played quite a big part because... Um, for a lot of years and certainly then, you know, they, they regularly had dealings with suicide bombers. So they had certain tactics how to deal with those people. It's not like the films generally. People don't walk around with great big suicide vests on the outside of their jacket. So you know who they are. You know, they're um, they're using all sorts of people in all shapes and sizes, all colours of skin. You know, you can't think or get a stereotype in your mind that it's going to be this person that looks like this and dresses like that. You know, it, it just doesn't work like that in the real world. It might do in the films, um, but but not in real life. So, yeah, very difficult tactic to deal with. We did a lot of training leading up to it and really sat down and sort of got our heads together. Go, right, how are we going to do this? You know, now a lot of uh, the suicide bombers will use 
dead man switches, which is basically when the weapon, when the device is armed, and let's say it's in a, a rucksack on their back, um, they press a button and hold a button down in their hand, and then they effectively take the safety pin off. So the moment that that button is released, the bomb's going to go bang. And of course, what that means is that there's, um, even if you shoot these people, you know, and bear in mind, obviously, if you shoot them in the chest area where they have the bomb strapped to, you may well detonate it. But equally, you know, if you use a, a sniper, a rifle officer, and you take a headshot on someone, as soon as their finger comes off that button, then uh, their device is going to activate. So really, really difficult to deal with. And um, invariably, it was felt that we would be dealing with the aftermath of a suicide bomber. It was not impossible but unlikely that we were going to get the heads up that someone was coming to town. Although in actual fact, that's very nearly what happened. Um, and it creates and brings up all sorts of sort of moral dilemmas. You know, now the police aren't execution squads and they're not the military either. But the discussion was had with bomb disposal types about how would we deal with these people and what would we do going forward. And one thing that became clear was that a lot of these people... Um, aren't doing it uh, out of choice. You know, some are obviously, you know, and some have an ideology, you know, and are absolutely, you know, sort of venomous in that they are going to carry out this attack and they're going to kill as many people as they can. But then there's lots of other grey areas. So what about the scenario where, you know, a member of your family has been taken hostage and now you're being forced that we will kill all your family unless you take this bag to that conference centre you know, and walk into it or leave it outside or press this button or attach this battery or whatever it is, you know, how do you deal with that? Um, and another side of that is what happens if the person says they're going to go through with it, you know, because they obviously want to protect their family, but then they get there to the site um, and basically, you know, decide it's not for them, have a change of heart, just can't go through with it. So now they might approach a cop or a security guard or someone and say, look, I've got a device in my bag, I'm attached to it, I can't unattach myself from it because it will go off or I've got a dead man switch in my hand and they explain, you know, they've got my family hostage, I don't want to do this, please can you help me? Well then, that throws up all sorts of issues again because bomb disposal are saying, basically, we pretty much won't do bomb disposal on somebody that's alive. So obviously, coming back to the execution squads and that, you know, you have to start looking at the different options. Now I can tell you, you know, that that never entered into it. This whole thing you see on the telly where, you know, you see uh, commanding officers saying to cops and snipers, you know, take the shot. I've authorised a shot and all the rest of it. That is not the case in the UK. That does not happen. However, it was very briefly looked at um, in the scenario of a suicide bomber. But straight away, armed officers like myself were saying, well, hang on a sec, you know, morally, I am not an executioner, you know. Um, if I have to shoot someone, then it will be because I believe uh, they are a threat. And and although, of course, a suicide bomber is a terrible threat, as they proved, you know, later in London. But um, how good is the information intelligence that that person is a suicide bomber? You know, is the description a 100 percent, you know, a million percent even because that's what I'd want. And I'd want a surveillance officer telling me in person that person you're looking at, that one there I'm pointing at, that is the one. I've seen the bomb go on him, you know, it would have to be so good. I've seen the bomb go on him. Um, he's the one and you need to shoot him, you know. And of course, that just isn't going to happen. Um, and unfortunately, we did also see a case in London where something very similar happened uh, and a guy was, was killed on the uh, on the tube 
in London and most people probably know what I'm talking about and that was a very similar scenario to that. I'm not going to get into it and I'm not going to sort of be drawn on it for my own views on it because I'm coming at it from a slightly different angle to everybody else but um, really really difficult decisions to be made and very quickly the decision was discounted that we would not have you know a senior officer or a commanding officer telling us that you know to take a shot because we are effectively their tool then aren't we you know we are their weapon they're the ones and even if they're saying no I'll take full responsibility well yeah you might do but I've still got to sleep at night you know so um, yeah it was discounted uh, really really difficult tactics to deal with the other one that came up um, scenario was whether the person intended to carry it out or not whether they're a willing party or not what happens if they release their button to detonate their bomb and then only the detonator goes off so maybe they're injured but uh, their main device hasn't gone off and they're laying there injured in the street there's been a small explosion you know and now bomb disposal have been called once again you know the conversation was had and again bomb disposal like we will not do bomb disposal on somebody who is still alive because what if it's what you'd call a come on you know what if it's a, a trick to get the bomb disposal close enough for them to then detonate the device or whatever um so yeah really really difficult uh things i'm not giving away any state secrets here you know this is all very well documented if you google this stuff if you're interested um, but yes, brings up all sorts of dilemmas, morally particularly, as I say, and, and for the officers who could be asked to go and, you know, carry out um, an operation like that and stop those people. Uh, very, very difficult. Anyway, with all this uh, stuff swilling around in our mind, I got deployed onto the conference. Uh, and basically my role was kind of to very much keep in the background as a plainclothes armed officer, um, and we were always there in the crowd or driving around in the plane car, able to be called on if needs be. We were very much aware of the close protection movements, which were separate to us, but various people, including, you know, prime minister or maybe a royal was visiting or something like that, would come in with their own protection team, which is a separate sort of bubble. And again, we're going to go on to close protection uh, on another time. So that was looked at. Um, we were about two or three days into the conference. And there was a call to a suspicious male out the front of the conference centre. Now, this male had been seen by two or three officers hanging round, acting very suspicious, really shifty. He had a big rucksack on his back that seemed kind of all out of proportion to to what you might take away, you know, to a seaside town. Obviously, there's no hard or fast rules there, but um, it did seem big. He was paying a lot of attention to the front of the conference centre to the point that he had a camera with a very long lens and also binoculars and um, the rifle officers the snipers on the roof had watched them themselves uh, that he was uh, not only uh, filming or what appeared to be filming with a camera he was taking photos he was even taking notes in a book you know and using binoculars and in conjunction with where he was you know and this bag obviously he had to be spoken to but it was decided that armed officers and in fact me and uh, my two colleagues would go and uh, have a chat with him. So obviously you can imagine this is where the, the plain clothes side of things comes in and uh, makes it that much easier uh, to approach people in this scenario. Uh, because if, you know, if, if he was, you know, and of course it was going through our mind, could this be a suicide bomber? Could this be somebody who's intending to go and plant that device? Or if not a suicide bomber, somebody who's intending to go and, you know, plant a device and get away with it themselves. Because obviously that's the other sort of bomber. Um, so yeah, we, it was very much in our mind when we approached and there's various subways that go underneath the road 
and and come out uh, onto the beach, which is where this guy was. And we knew that the rifle officers had uh, eyes on him and we were getting a sort of commentary through our earpieces as to what he was or wasn't up to. So <clears throat> we, excuse me, we approached the guy, but we did it in such a way that I think one of us came from uh, down the beach, sort of, he was at the top of the beach and it's a big sort of shingle beach. One of us approached, sort of looped around him, approached from the sea itself and came up sort of behind him from out of the sea, almost, if you like. One of us uh, came down some steps uh, from the top of the promenade and then I came through one of the uh, underground sort of subways that cut under the main road and came out on the seafront. So we approach from separate ways. Now, one of the things that's going through your mind in this scenario is, should he have bad intentions and we approach him and for whatever reason, he either makes us out as cops or, you know, believes we're cops because that might all be, you know, might all be that what he needs you know to actually then for example detonate his his device or he also could have a firearm on him um we need to be very aware even while we're standing and speaking to this guy or approaching him that we don't have a blue on blue i.e i am not walking directly at the guy and the other side of him my colleague is also walking towards him you know directly in line with me <clears throat> so we were very careful that we approached from different sides and we made sure we sort of played our angles correctly so that there was no one in our line of fire because, um, you know, we were on high alert. There was no doubt about it. Um, we were all carrying handguns. They were in holsters on our hip, what's called a pancake holster, which is a covert holster, which is very, very thin. And with a jacket that's, you know, one or two sizes too big and a shirt underneath, um, you're never going to know I've got it, you know. Um, but we had practiced hundreds of times in the range drawing the shooting very quickly from this covert holster. So we knew that we were sort of equipped to deal with it should should need be. So anyway, we approached this guy and as soon as we'd, you know, uh, sp spoken to him in the first instance and told him who we were, obviously then we had to show him ID, uh, you know, warrant cards to back up who we were. Um, but very early on, uh, we were also still getting this commentary in our ear from the rifle officers that were on the roof of the conference centre. Now it's really disconcerting because they would call us up and then either use our first names or in fact we worked on nicknames um, and say to us, can you just take a step to the left? Uh, so you're very aware why they're asking you to do that. So you would take a step or two to your left and, and they would say one or two steps. You wanted to do like 25 steps, but obviously you couldn't because you're trying to speak to this guy and you would just take a step back and then you'd hear the rifle officer say very calmly, shot on, uh, you know, so you're aware that the crosshairs of his rifle, of his scope, were almost certainly centred on that guy's head, you know, or his chest or somewhere. And he would have a spotter with him who that was watching the potential bad guy. And I sort of underline that word in big letters, you know, uh, potential bad guy. You know, the observer would be watching like a hawk through binoculars or very powerful spotting scopes, his hands and making sure, you know, that that nothing happened. Um, so um, we basically spoke to the guy. We explained why we were there, showed him a warrant card every now and then, kind of every, you know, minute or two. We were getting the so and so. Can you take a step to the left, take a step back, take a step to the right? And then we were just getting shot on. And then every 30 seconds or so, they would repeat it. Shot on. Shot on. You know, and uh, as I say, it very much focuses your mind when you're trying to deal with someone. 
because you know what it means. Um, so we spoke to the guy. He was absolutely fine. He, he was good as gold. He was very calm. Uh, he was a tourist, but he was interested in what was happening there. He had no idea that there was any sort of conference on. So he was really interested and uh, kind of wanted to take back some photos back to his country. You know, he we had powers to look at people's phones and cameras and he was freely showing us what he'd taken photos of. And although it was of the centre, it was nothing specific. He wasn't, you know, zooming in on officers' weapons or whatever. Um, we carried out a search uh, under the Terrorism Act on his bag, which is, a, you know, quite a wide-ranging power. Um, but basically we went, th we searched him, we searched his bag, and, you know, he was very reasonable. He completely understood why we'd done it, and there was no problems. Um so that was it. We we left him to it and, and we carried on about our business. Um, so, uh, yes, the first time I'd, I'd worked quite so closely with rifle officers like that. And, um, yeah, like I said, it uh, it definitely focuses the mind somewhat. The other call we had was to a, um, a what ended up being a bomb hoax call down to one of the local supermarkets. Um, they do happen every now and then. There may be nothing in it. But we were deployed again into the crowd because the worry was because the conference was on, was this happening um, to try and draw resources away? Maybe even, you know, uh, a, a pretend bomb, you know, would be planted there or, or maybe even a small device could be detonated on the basis it would draw resources and cops and armed officers and ambulance staff or whatever away from the main conference centre, thus leaving it, you know, vulnerable to attack. So we were sent down, we were deployed into the crowd um, and we got down there before uniformed officers. Um, so we were very much just milling around the supermarket, uh, just really watching out for anyone. Because what you tend to find happens at these things is quite often the bad guy or girl will also be there in the crowd because they'll be looking at how does the police react to this? How many cops do they send? How big is their cordon? You know, how how wide is it? How long do they keep the cordon on? And then what resources come down? Is it just uniform cops and they decide they're happy? Is there a full search team? You know, these are all the things that bad guys or girls will watch for. And certainly when you go back to sort of the Irish terrorist days, um, invariably there would be what we call an RVP, a rendezvous point decided uh, for a location on a bomb call. Um, but a favourite tactic was that um, the, the terrorists would also look at the sort of the geography of the place, um, see a very obvious big car park that they were pretty confident was going to be picked as the RVP. Um, they might set a bomb, you know, near it deliberately to draw officers in, thinking that they would pick this now big car park as the rendezvous point for all the ambulance staff to go to and the fire and the bomb disposal and all those. And actually their main device would be set in that car park where they guessed that the RVP would be set so that there would be maximum casualties amongst um, the emergency services when that device was detonated. So uh, the very first thing that happens is, you know, any potential RVPs are searched uh, first, you know. Um, but at the time, it was a pretty common tactic, you know, and likewise, you know, the sort of military and the police in Ireland and in this country had to adapt and learn how to deal with that. Um yeah, quite a common tactic. So we basically stayed in that crowd and milled around and then uh, uniform cops came down. As I say, we got down there before them and sure enough, you know, they put a cordon on and then a search was carried out. And But we couldn't leave at that point because um, the one thing they didn't want us to do is show out. Now, at any point, we could have gone up to the uniform cops and said, 
you know, this is me, I'm actually a cop, plain clothes cop, I need to get out of here because I need to go and deal with something else, can you let me out? But we absolutely didn't want to show out um, to anyone in the crowd because if those people were there in the crowd looking at how we reacted, then straight away we potentially ID'd ourselves to them. So that was something we avoided. So we ended up getting stuck down there, unfortunately, for about two hours because that's how long it took to... Uh, you know, search through this, first of all, manually with, with cops kind of walking through like a line search. Um, and this is all the time with, you know, a couple of hundred people that have been in the supermarket uh, corralled in there as well. And then eventually with sniffer dogs that were put through the area to to have a look. And sooner or later, you know, if you've done everything you possibly can, um, you have to call it really that, um, you know, we're happy and you can take the cordons off and life can carry on. Um because without specific information or intelligence, you, you know, you could spend days or weeks there going through every little thing. Um, but unfortunately, off the back of kind of the Irish troubles, um, the UK adapted, you know, so you won't find things like um, bins in airports, bins in train stations, or you will. But what there'll be is a, is a clear bag that hangs down from a metal framework. So no one could go and put a device in a, bo in a, a bin, um, you know, without it being seen and then detonate it. It's a clear plastic bag. If someone puts a device or leaves a rucksack or something in there, um, then, you know, it will be seen. So that was the sort of things that got changed uh, to prevent that from happening. And there's there's lots of different tactics as well around that uh, that I won't go into for obvious reasons. So, yeah, anyway, that particular conference passed off without incident or nothing sort of terrorist related there was plenty of incidents there was plenty of people trying to charge on stage and protests and people trying to climb over the fences and certainly I was at one where a guy had um, climbed a lamppost and was threatening to hang himself unless the prime minister came and spoke to him um, you know and that's the sort of thing that happens but that is kind of normal everyday policing and it wouldn't necessarily involve um, armed police um, but it was it was quite an interesting uh, well for us it was a couple of weeks you know um, floating around and, and being in the background very much but they're able to, to deal should it be required um, but yeah it was it was a good variety and uh, another job uh, ticked off for the um, the specialist firearms officer that I had recently become or relatively recently become at that point so next week we'll move on to some other stuff got a few more armed incidents for you hopefully you find interesting uh, thanks very much for listening keep coming back really appreciate it don't cheekily, don't forget to buy me a coffee. If you fancy buying me a coffee, that would be nice. But if not, not to worry. You know, this is very much free and this is just about me talking about my career. So um, I'll speak to you again soon. Take it easy. Cheers. Bye.